Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Bradley, and I'll be bringing you our Bible reading tonight. Um, the Bible readings from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. As God wants you to be, at, because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Well, uh, hi everyone, my name's Mark. Uh, let me greet you and uh, let me encourage you to take this opportunity to greet one another with a kiss of love. You can go ahead and do that now. No, don't worry. Uh, we we're not going to do that tonight. Maybe a nice handshake would be the cultural equivalent of what Peter's calling us to there. Uh, we're going to finish off... Um, Chapter 5, 1 Peter. It's been a great series. I've really enjoyed studying it with you. Uh, there's a lot in here, though, so let's uh, pray and ask for God's help, and then uh, we'll get into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help now as we come to your word. Uh, Lord, we need your help to be able to understand it, but more than that, Lord, we need your help to be able to obey it, uh, because our hearts are deceptive, they are wicked, they are turned away from you by default. And so we ask, please, by the work of your spirit, would you humble us? Uh, please make us people who are glad to obey you, uh, who understand what you have given to us in the Lord Jesus and who want to give you everything we can in return. So we ask for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know whether that's going to be banging all uh, sermon. We'll see how we go. I might switch to the handheld if we need to. Uh, let me introduce you to someone. 
Uh, this is uh, Eliud Kipchoge. Uh, if you've been paying attention to the news, you may have seen him on your TV screens in the last couple of months, because uh, he did something pretty remarkable in October. Uh, he is the first man in history to run a marathon in less than two hours. One hour, 59 minutes and 40 seconds. He is the only human being on the planet who has ever done that. That's pretty astounding. It's something that most people thought and most top-level runners actually thought was actually not able to be done. That There was this kind of glass ceiling at two hours and it was impossible to get underneath it. But Eliud broke it by 20 seconds. And uh, if you've seen the, any of the footage of him doing that, it's really annoying to watch him do this because he makes it look so darn easy. <laughs> he's like smiling as he crosses the line. He's barely out of breath. You know, he hasn't even broken a sweat. Like, I hate people like that. You know, the, they make you feel guilty that you sweat when you get out of bed. Like, that's the kind of person that Eliud Kipchoge is. Uh, he, he made this incredible feat crossing this finish line just look, look so effortless. But it was, in fact, a massive massive logistical operation to get him across that line in under two hours. Uh, because even at the best of times, a marathon is a battle, right? Uh, Eliud had help from heaps of people to do this. Uh, for starters, he, he ran this race in Vienna, Austria. It was a location that was chosen because it was quite low uh, to, to sea level. There was lots of oxygen in the air. It meant he could run uh, at a higher capacity rather than running at elevation. They chose a course that was basically just a straight line up and back, minimal corners, and as flat as possible so that he could go as fast as possible. Uh, they closed the circuit so that he and his crew were the only people on the street. Nobody had to kind of run around and, and lose some time. Uh, Nike made him some custom running shoes for this occasion. They're shoes that had like carbon fiber plates through the bottoms of them so that as he ran, he sort of like got extra spring and could run a bit faster. Uh, he had a pace car driving with him, in front of him the whole time, at the exact speed he needed to be going, and this pace car projected a laser grid onto the road so that he knew exactly how fast he had to be going, could just keep up with the marker the whole time. And on top of all of that, you can kind of see in the background there, Elliot had 41 other runners assist him in this. Uh, other high-level marathon runners who were sort of tagging in and out over the course of that almost two hours to help him keep pace. And what they did is they ran in front of him, almost in like a, a flying V formation, so that he would have less wind resistance. They took the brunt of it so that he had an easier time. It was a massive operation to see him cross that finish line. Now, in the book of 1 Peter that we've been studying over these last seven weeks or so, the, the Christian life has been described to us as something of an ordeal akin to that. It's a long journey. It's a hard journey, the Christian life. And there is a question about what is it going to take to cross that finish line, uh, to, to make it through this, this life as an exile in a hostile land and to make it to our heavenly reward. Well, in the chapter that we're looking at today, Peter tells us what it, what it takes to cross that finish line. Have a look here uh, in verse 12 at the end of, of this chapter, where Peter actually explains the purpose of him writing this letter. Verse 12, he says, With the help of Silas, great name, by the way, Silas. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. And so, 
Peter is writing here to encourage these Christians to stand fast in the grace of God, to hold on to it and to make sure that they don't let go so that they do one day cross that finish line, that they receive their reward at the end of their life. And, and, and what 1 Peter 5 does for us is it spells out exactly what they need to do that, to stand firm, to not let go and to keep going across this finish line. And what they need, it's, it's not a laser-guided pace car. Uh, what we need is not some flash pair of Nike sneakers to make it to the end of this race, this Christian life. Peter's answer, actually, in 1 Peter 5 is quite surprising. His answer of what you and I need if we want to finish this race is humility. That's what Peter says we need to make it to the end of this Christian life. Humility. And it's a humility, actually, we're going to see, that is anchored in hope. Humility anchored in hope. Humility is what is going to enable us to survive this Christian life and to thrive in it, to make it to the end. So look there in the middle of the passage, verse 5. This is kind of the key. It shows you what the whole passage is all about. Uh, uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, uh, halfway through. All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Uh, this is the command to all of us clothe yourself with humility. Put it on, right? This is God telling us what, it, what the dress code is for this race, this life as an exile. The dress code is humility. God reckons that's what's in fashion for the Christian. Uh, humility that, that's kind of being talked about all throughout this passage, it's the idea of laying down your and sort of setting aside your personal interest for the good of another person. Ultimately, setting aside your personal interest for God's sake, that's, that's kind of really what humility is. Humility is that dynamic that says, uh, how do I live for God and not for Mark? Put your name in that equation. That's the humility that we're being encouraged to here. Now, why is that important? Well, Peter tells us, right, in the middle there. It's because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Now, that's, that's kind of a general comment about God's attitude towards humility and pride, uh, but it's a significant one because if you think about it, what is the ultimate form of pride in this life? The ultimate form of pride is to think that you don't need God. It's, it's to, to keep God out of the picture of your life, to, to try and go it alone. That's the ultimate form of pride in our hearts. And the person who is proud in that way, the person who persists throughout the entirety of their life, being proud like that, keeping God at arm's length, who never acknowledges their need for God, Peter says that actually what's going to happen is God is going to oppose that person at the end of their life. That God will judge that person for their pride, for their opposition to God. But, in contrast... The humble person, the person who acknowledges their need for God, who comes to God and says, God, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, and I've got nothing without you. I need your help, God. I'm coming on my knees, I'm coming empty-handed, and so please, Lord, give me salvation, give me forgiveness. The person who is humble like that, well, Peter says that God shows favour to that person. He shows grace to that person. And so humility, it is key uh, for for every Christian. In fact, you can't actually be a Christian if you're not humble, if you haven't humbled yourself before God, because that, that is almost the definition of becoming a Christian. It's 
humbling yourself, repenting of your pride and your self-sufficiency and becoming dependent upon God, receiving the grace that he gives to you. Humility is essential. It is the dress code for Christians. It's essential not just for our survival kind of as individuals, but actually more than that, for our survival as a church. Humility is the key. Pride is the killer. Uh, It's what takes churches down, actually, probably more than anything else. Pride is what causes churches to splinter, to grow cold, to drift away. It's a killer. And so if we are going to make it to the end of this race together, if we're going to cross that finish line with our brothers and sisters around us, then we need to have this kind of humility that Peter's going to describe in chapter 5. And so what he does and where we're going to go with this chapter is Peter sort of addresses different groups in the church and he encourages these groups towards this humility anchored in hope. And so we're going to work our way through and see the different ways that this kind of humble attitude is is encouraged here. And so let's, if you've got a Bible, keep it open there to to verse 1 and notice that the, the first group of people that Peter speaks to are the leaders in the church. And he says to these leaders that they need to lead with humility. That's the first instruction in this chapter. Lead with humility. So let's read again from verse 1 uh, through to verse 4. Peter writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And so here here is Peter addressing the elders in the church. Now, uh, don't be mistaken, this is not Peter talking to the oldies, the people with grey hair in the congregation. Uh, An elder in in the Bible is like the leader of a church. Uh, It's a person who's been appointed with responsibility to oversee what's going on, the ministry and the people in the church. It's kind of like an office-holding position, right? And so these are the leaders, and Peter appeals to them, you notice that, as a fellow elder. I appeal as a fellow elder. And so he starts this instruction, this instruction about humility. He starts it from a place of humility because this is Peter, right? Remember Peter? He's one of Jesus' most trusted disciples. He's had incredible privileges throughout his life. He's he's done incredible ministry in the name of Jesus for years and years and years. And he could come along to these Christians and say, guys, (laughs) I think you've heard about me. My reputation precedes me probably. I'm Peter. So here's my instruction. Now get on with it. Like He could be harsh like that, couldn't he? But he doesn't. He comes on the same level as them. He reminds them that he is suffering for the sake of Jesus too. That he, just like them, is going to share in the glory to be revealed. He's coming and he's saying, I'm on your level, guys. And so he's modelling for them straight away the kind of humility he's about to encourage them towards. And so he says to these, these other elders, in humility, he says, be shepherds of God's flock. Now that word shepherd, it's where we get our English word pastor from. And pastor is really just another word for shepherd. It's the idea of a person who, who watches over a flock of, of people. And it's a, a word with like a rich biblical background. It's a word that actually, a shepherd, that God uses to describe himself at various places in the Bible. You might know Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. God reveals himself as one who watches over the flock. And, and throughout the Bible, God gives that title of shepherd 
to human leaders, the ones who were responsible for looking after his people. So the priests, the teachers of the law, Moses himself is called a shepherd at one point. Uh, These are all the people who are charged with overseeing God's flock. They're under shepherds, under the, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, if you like. Now, in the story of the Bible, the human shepherds stuff it up big time over and over again. And at various points, God shows up and he says, you guys are doing such a bad job here. I'm going to come along and I'm going to remove you as being my shepherds because I don't like the way you're treating my flock. And God makes this promise, this incredible promise in Ezekiel chapter 34 that one day he himself is going to come back and be the shepherd for his people again. He's going to remove the under shepherds and he's going to shepherd the people. And of course, we know as the story of the Bible goes on that that promise is fulfilled when the Lord Jesus arrives. Uh, Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, I am the great chief shepherd, right? I'm the one who lays down my life for my sheep. They hear my voice and they, they know that it's me. Uh, Jesus is the one who ha- come, comes to fulfill that, to be the chief shepherd. And then in Jesus' church, in, in this organization that you and I are in, He again gives the title of shepherd to the leaders in the church, those who are going to follow his example, going to oversee the flock. Uh, That's what a shepherd is. And so uh, just to kind of connect the dots here, uh, who are the shepherds at WBC? Uh, Who's the shepherd here? Jesus is the chief shepherd, of course. Uh, If you want to talk about the shepherd, then the shepherd is Rod Bailey, our senior pastor, right? Which is it's really convenient that uh, we can, we're preaching on this passage today because Rod's still on long service leave, and so we can talk about him as the shepherd here uh, without him knowing, so that's wonderful. Uh, but actually, uh, the, Rod is not the only shepherd here at WBC. I hope you know that. Our, our philosophy and our intention is to try and give shepherding responsibility to as many people as possible. Uh, we want as many of you to be the kind of leaders who oversee the flock and who care for and feed and guard the sheep here at WBC. So if you're a home group leader, in some sense you're a shepherd. Uh, if you're a kids' church leader, you teach the Bible to the kids on Sunday school, in some sense you're a shepherd, right? We have elders, we have deacons, all sorts of leaders at this church we would regard as shepherd because we want to see as much shepherding work get done as possible. And so if that's you, if you're in some position of leadership, then what Peter's saying to the elders here, it applies to you, okay? Now, if, you're, if that's not you, if you're not a leader here, you still need to listen up to this uh, because this is going to teach you about the kind of person that you want to aspire to be, uh, the kind of person that you want to help your leader to be, in fact, as well. Uh, and so let, let's see what the, this picture of humble leadership is that Peter paints for these elders. Uh, notice that the first kind of thing he teaches them here is that they need to remember that the people that they're overseeing don't actually belong to them. Notice that? He says, be shepherds of God's flock. They're not your flock. They're God's flock. And you need to watch over them. That's the first important lesson for leaders to learn. I don't know if you've ever been in the situation where uh, somebody has asked you to look after a pet for them for you, uh, whilst they go on holiday or something. Say, please, would you just you know, house-sit my pet, keep it alive, keep it fed, that kind of thing. I get asked to do that like maybe about once a year, and I've never said yes to it because, let's be honest, who wants that responsibility, right? Like, I don't want the, the life and the, the, the well-being of some little animal to rest on my shoulders. I'm not qualified to look after that. I mean, somebody comes and says, here's my cat. Would you make sure it doesn't die? Like, well, I mean, no one's going to care if their cat dies. But, like, let's say a dog, right? <laughs> Who wants that responsibility on their shoulders? To look after somebody else's precious little one? No, thank you. 
Well, God says here to the leaders of the church, guys, you need to remember that the people you're looking after, they belong to me. Far more precious than any pet. These are people who I purchased with my blood. Leaders need to remember that and feel the weight of that responsibility. Uh, And then he kind of goes on from from there and he, he paints this picture he fleshes it out of what this humble leadership looks like. And he, he does that by sort of doing these three comparisons. He says, leaders, don't do this, but do this instead. Not this, but this. So let's work our way through them. Notice verse 2. Uh, firstly, that these humble leaders in the church, they're not to lead because they must, but because they're willing. Right? Uh, he, we don't want leaders who just kind of feel dragged into the role reluctantly. Uh, we don't want leaders who are, who are grumbling and complaining about having this responsibility giving to, given to them and feeling resentful about what they've been asked to do. And to be honest, that is actually quite a common temptation for leaders to feel. It would have been particularly common for the leaders in Peter's day that he was writing to, to feel that kind of resentment of like, ah, don't really want to be doing this. And that's because... In, in his day, a context where there was pretty strong persecution towards Christians, think about this. When the, when the persecutors show up at that church and their intention is to, to jail or to kill the Christians, who are going to be the first people that they're going to go for? It's going to be the leaders, isn't it? The leaders are going to be the ones with the target on their back. There is a cost to being a leader that you might be the target of opposition from the world. It's true in Peter's age. It's becoming true, I think, in our age. I think it's quite possible that in the not-too-distant future, in our world, that Christian leaders will suffer first and suffer more than non-leaders will. And so Peter's reminding leaders, you've got to remember that there is a cost to this. There's a price to be paid. And so it's important that you do so voluntarily. Don't don't go into this thing half-heartedly because you won't last. He wants them to be willing to serve. Right? knowing that there is a greater responsibility that you carry as a leader. Uh, he, he still says to these leaders, okay, guys, step up, take it on. Uh, know what's coming and ultimately understand the incredible privilege that you have for being an overseer, a shepherd of God's precious flock. Understand the blessing that it is for you as a leader to suffer for the name of Christ. Understand those things and choose to lead. Put your hand up and say that there is nothing in this world that is a bigger and more worthwhile purpose of spending your life than than shepherding God's flock and do it willingly. That's what humble leadership looks like. It's the first picture. Peter goes on. The second picture, he says, leaders are not to pursue dishonest gain, but eager to serve, right? Pretty straightforward. Leaders shouldn't be greedy for money. They shouldn't be doing dodgy business practices to line their pockets, And so if you're a leader in the church, then you've got to make sure that you never do your ministry as a means of making money, right? Now, that doesn't mean, thankfully, that you should never pay your pastors. That's not what that's talking about. Jesus himself makes it pretty clear that it's very appropriate. Matthew chapter 10, it's appropriate for people to make a living from ministering the gospel But Peter's saying it's bad to be greedy for money, right? There's a difference. And I take Peter's point here to mean that it's bad, actually, to go into ministry for any reason thinking about what you can get out of it. It's not just about being greedy for money. It's being greedy for prestige, perhaps. Being greedy for honour, being greedy for the approval of other people. Peter's saying don't go into ministry focused on what you can get out of it. Don't make ministry about you. No, be eager to serve instead. 
That's the heart of Christian leadership, service. You're eager, you're enthusiastic to serve, to lay down your life for the good of other people. That's humility. That's what leadership in the church is supposed to look like. And it's radically different from, from leadership in the rest of the world, isn't it? I reckon that there's nothing uglier, actually, than when a leader fails at this, when they fail to lay down their life for their sheep, and instead they just have that kind of proud self-interest. They're in it for themselves, for their own glory, their own reputation. Pray that you never come across such leaders. Third picture of humble leadership there, quickly, is that leaders should not lord it over those who are entrusted to them but instead be examples to the flock, right? Straightforward, leaders don't be on a power trip. Uh, Don't be in it to dominate and be harsh with people. Uh, Sadly, I think a lot of people have had this experience in churches where they've they've had run-ins with leaders uh, and they talk in these terms of kind of spiritual abuse and it's often because leaders have failed at this very instruction. Uh, That leaders have, instead of coming alongside and serving them, Uh, They have been about getting the power for themselves, about dominating and directing people for themselves. That's worldly kind of leadership. It's not what church leadership should be like. Church leaders are to be examples to the flock, right? That's kind of inherent in the, the metaphor of being a shepherd, isn't it? Maybe when you think about a shepherd, your image is the, you know, like an Australian drover, that kind of an image. Somebody riding around on a dirt bike in a massive paddock, like sheepdogs around the place, trying to herd these animals into a, a... shed or something. I'm not like rural. I don't, I don't know whether that's what drovers do. But that, that's not the, the kind of shepherding that uh, Peter's first readers would have understood. A shepherd in the ancient Near East was somebody who was out in front of the flock. They weren't behind kind of driving and whipping the, the sheep forward. They were out in front, walking ahead, facing the danger first and calling the flock to come and follow them, calling them to hear their voice. And so you understand that the, the whole point of a shepherd is that the sheep are supposed to be able to look at the shepherd and know where to go, know what life is supposed to look like. That's a Christian leader. To have people look at your life and say, that's what following Jesus looks like. And that's a big responsibility, isn't it? I hope you're getting a sense of what Peter's calling leaders to here because it is not a small thing. It's a radical picture of leadership, of humble leadership. I think the reason Peter's doing this is because he knows that we will only make it to the end of this race, this marathon, if we have leaders like this. If these are the kind of leaders who are over us, humble leaders, laying down their lives for us, teaching us to love like Jesus loved, we're only going to survive and thrive if those are our leaders. If pride creeps in to the, to the leaders of the church, then it's going to destroy the sheep, just like it did with those leaders of ancient Israel. It's crucial that leaders be humble. And did you notice in this section... That as Peter calls them to humility, that he anchors this call in the hope that they have in the gospel. Uh, that's what's going to kind of fuel the leaders to, to live this way, to lead this way. Look at verse 4, where he, he reminds them of their eternal reward. Verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Right? He's saying to these elders, you can be humble. You can do this. You can pour your life out in the service of other people because you know that it will be worth it. You know that there is a reward coming, a crown of glory, that eternal inheritance that Peter's been talking about for the whole book, which is kept in heaven for us. And you notice when that reward comes? When is it? It's when the chief shepherd appears. It's when Jesus returns. 
not before. And so a leader sacrifices their life. They, they set an example for the flock. They pay the high price of suffering for the name of Jesus, knowing that reward is coming, not expecting it in this life, not seeking it in this life because we don't need it in this life. Leaders, you see, they set their hope on the grace to be revealed them when Jesus returns. And as they do that, they are a good example to the rest of us because that is the nature of the Christian life, isn't it? To serve, to suffer, to follow Jesus now with the hope of eternal glory to follow. We need leaders like that. We need you to be leaders like that if we are going to survive and thrive as a church. That's the first instruction that Peter's got for these people. The second group of people that Peter wants to address here from verse 5 is is the the non-leaders those who are not in leadership. And he says to those people that your job is to submit in humility to your leaders, to submit. So let's have a read again of of verse 5. Peter says, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. Now, that word younger, it's an interesting word, and I hope you don't feel personally attacked here tonight like Peter's picking on you. Uh, I think when Peter uses that word, he is actually talking about the people who are Uh, chronologically younger, younger in age. I think he is talking about that because let's be real, it's usually those people who are a bit hot-headed. It's usually those people who are a little bit more rebellious, a little bit more stubborn, a little bit less inclined to submit to leadership over them and who need to be reminded that, no, your job is to submit to authority. I think Peter is first and foremost addressing those young people. If that's you, hey, look, this is God's word, it's not my words. Uh, But... I don't think it just applies to that. So you don't get a pass of this if you're like over 35. That's, that's, uh, you are not exempt from this because in the same way that the word elder kind of just referred to all leaders, all those people who have shepherding responsibility, I think the younger people here really refers to everybody who is under leadership. That's the point. If you're not a leader, then being younger is the description of you in this passage. And his, his instruction to you is to submit to leadership. If you are a younger person, that's, that's what God is calling you to here. And again, I think Peter's doing this because he realises that to make it to the end, we've got to work together. We, we, there's got to be harmony in the church. We've got to be pulling in the same direction. I don't know if you've ever considered, the, this might sound obvious, but the difference between a tug of war and a dog sled. Okay, you thought about the difference here? Tug of war, two groups of people pulling in, in polar opposite directions. What happens? None of them, like they barely move. There's a few inches perhaps that they, they move in one direction or the other and by the end of it, half of them are covered in mud. That's a tug of war, right? Compare that to a, a dog sled though and what's happening in a dog sled, that whole operation, every part of it is working together in sync to go in one particular direction. Everybody knows it, everybody's working together and what happens? They, they go easily, they go fast. Uh, do you know that it, it's kind of the same in the church? That if we are all just pulling off in our own directions, we're never going to go anywhere. We're never going to be effective. We're going to get exhausted pulling against each other and half of us are going to be covered in mud. And I don't want that to be me. No, we, we need to be more like that dog sled, right? Pulling together, following the direction of our leaders, working together so that we're effective on our mission, submitting to the direction of our leaders. Now, uh, I, I realise that as I'm... Um, I'm instructing this 
to you from God's word that there's a bit of a conflict of interest here because what am I? I'm a leader in the church. And so here I am instructing you to submit to me and others like me. I understand that. And so uh, because of that conflict of interest, allow me to, to take off my pastor's hat for a minute and to remind you that I'm just a sheep like you And actually, I have a shepherd who's over me too. His name is Rod Bailey. And so I have to learn this. I have to to learn what it is to be a younger person who submits to leadership, right? I'm not exempt from this. None of the leaders in this church are exempt from this, actually. We all play this role from time to time, submitting to the leaders over us. So I'm in it with you, okay? That's my proviso. I'll put my pastor's hat back on. And and what I want us to do is to have a think about then... How are we going at that instruction? Because it's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? Submit to the direction of your leaders. Follow their lead. Obey them. How are you going at that? When when a leader comes along, when a shepherd, somebody who who leads you, has responsibility for you, oversees you, and they say, I'd like you to do this, please, how do you you go at responding to their direction? I reckon there's a bit of a spectrum of, of responses that are kind of natural to us here. Uh, There are some people, perhaps maybe you grew up in a church that was like this, or you come from a culture like this, where you're perhaps overly reverent uh, towards leaders. I'll be honest and say, I don't think that there's many people in our church who are like this, but if if you are one of these people and I haven't met you, I'd love you to come and join my home group. Uh, This kind of person, right, who is like... Uh, defers to the leader, treats the leader almost as a demigod. The leader can do nothing wrong. I will never question the leader's words. The leader says jump and I say how high. You know, the leader walks past and I put my coat down for them to walk across the puddle. There are some people who are just naturally wired like that. I don't think that's our problem, to be honest. I think we are more likely to be up the other end of the spectrum, to be people who naturally dishonour our leaders, who naturally don't obey our leaders, because that's, that's Australian culture, isn't it? We prefer to pull our leaders down a rung or two. Uh, we do that when it comes to our national leaders, our political leaders. We do that about our bosses in our workplaces, our schools, whatever. And yes, we even do that with the leaders in the church, right? That's the air that we breathe. That's Australian culture. That's more common to us. And so you may not have even noticed that you're doing this, but there's a whole bunch of, of ways that this kind of dishonouring of leadership expresses itself. For instance, you might be dishonouring your leaders if just in your heart there is this natural default state where you don't trust a leader, where you're sceptical of everything that they tell you. That might be a sign that in your heart there's a dishonouring of leaders going on. Perhaps in, in some of our hearts we have this tendency to just believe the worst about our leader or assume the worst, that when they make a decision they've done that specifically to annoy me. Maybe that's what's going on for some of us. A lot of us will perhaps second-guess our leaders, uh, to refuse to obey our leaders. When they tell us to do something, we think, no, you know what, I don't really like the sound of that, so I'm going to go in the opposite direction. They want me to show up to another church meeting? No, I choose not to. That can be a sign of dishonouring a leader. Talking negatively about leaders behind their backs. There's a whole bunch of different ways that this attitude expresses itself, and I suspect that that's probably more common for most of us. Now, there, uh, what happens as we do that, and I understand this from first-hand experience, is that we justify that kind of dishonouring, right? We say to ourselves, well, of course I behave that way. Of course I don't submit to that leader because that leader's not worth submitting to. They're not worthy. I can see all these faults in this leader, and so why would I follow them? We do that, don't we? And can I say, if, if, if that's the game that you play that stops you from submitting to leaders, it's a slippery slope to play that game. 
Because if you go looking for faults in your leaders, you will find them. Leaders are just sheep. They're just like you. They're just flawed human beings that Jesus is redeeming. You will find... If you come to... I will give you a list of my faults. I'll tell you a whole bunch of reasons why I'm not worthy of following. But if you let those faults be something that stops you from ever submitting to anybody, do you know what's going to happen? You, you won't submit to anybody in your life because nobody will meet that standard of what you consider being worthy to submit to. That's a great danger. And so I think that's why Peter tells us here in verse 5, he reminds us of the motivation for why we should submit. Look at verse 5 and notice this. He says, In the same way, you who are younger submit to your elders. Now, he's used that phrase, in the same way, a bunch of times throughout this book. And if you've been paying attention, you may notice, came up in chapter 2, chapter 3, when he says, in the same way, what does Peter mean? Essentially, he's saying, for the Lord's sake. Uh, do this conscious of God. That's the way he's used that phrase throughout the book. So he's saying to you here, you are to submit to your leaders conscious of God for the Lord's sake. You're to obey your leaders because as you obey and honour them, you are obeying and honouring your Lord. Do it for the Lord's sake. And he goes on, verse 6 there, he says, you've got to remember that it's actually under God's mighty hand that you humble yourself and submit. It's not under the leader's mighty hand that you choose to come up. No, it's under God's mighty hand. That's the decision that we've got to make. We've got to remember that God is in sovereign control over all of our lives. That's the choice going on. If we're going to choose to submit to our leaders, it's actually a choice to submit to God. And the, and the reason I'm, I'm stressing this is because I want you to see that there's a link between the decision you make to submit to your leaders and the decision you make to submit to God. Those two things are not independent. They are actually deeply connected. I would go as far as to say that it's actually one of the greatest evidences of whether you are submitting to God is whether you are submitting to the leaders that God has put over you. Because if in your heart there is just this tendency towards rebelliousness and stubbornness and an unwillingness to submit and obey, then chances are that that same attitude is present in your heart when it comes to obeying God's instructions on your life. There's a serious kind of a charge here. The problem, I think, is our hearts a lot of the time, right? Our, our hearts, our sinful hearts, by default, don't want to be told what to do. That's kind of the nature of sin. We want to rule our own lives. We don't like other people telling us how to live and what to do. And, and so notice what Peter says next in verse 7. Knowing that this is, this is challenging and knowing that our tendency is to buck against submitting, Peter says here in verse 7, friends, when you're in that situation, what do you do? Cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you, verse 7. Right? This, this concept of submitting to leaders, Peter knows that it's scary, that fears and anxieties can well up within us at that point when we think of entrusting ourselves to a leader over us and we ask those questions of what will happen to me if I do that? Will I be safe? Will I be valued? Will I find joy by letting go and obeying my leader? When we feel those kind of fears and worries and anxieties, know that God understands what we're going through there. And, and God's, God's instruction to us is at that point, what do we do? We come to him. We cast our anxieties on him. You see what God says to us here, that we are not to carry our anxieties around ourselves. When we're, when we're wrestling with submission, that we are to come to God, throw our anxieties upon him, pray to him, trust him, remember that he is our shepherd, that he loves us, and that he can be trusted. 
this instruction here in verse 7, it's a general instruction for you, for all of life. Every moment you are anxious, cast your anxieties on God, but it is especially true and especially helpful for us as we wrestle with submitting to leaders. And do you know that uh, that instruction, right, to the younger folk here, to submit in humility, that it, it is again anchored in hope. You notice the deliberate link that Peter makes here in verse 6. He reminds them in verse 6 that in due time, God will lift them up. Right? He's reminding us that God cares for us. He's looking out for us. And that he will in due time, in his perfect time, he will vindicate us. And so we can all do this. We can all submit to our leaders, to the authorities, to the masters in our life as we need to. And we do that because we want to stand firm, because we want to reach the end goal together as a church, because we don't want pride to creep in, because instead we're going to make a choice to pull in the same direction so that we are effective, so that we go somewhere. And so we follow the direction of our leaders. And in due time, God will lift us up. That is our hope. Look at the, uh, the final instruction here. Having spoken to leaders, having spoken to non-leaders, uh, Peter then casts the net even wider. And he, in, from verse 8, he speaks to everyone. And his instruction to every single one of us at this point is that we need to resist the devil. If we want to survive and thrive as a church, we've got to resist the devil. Let's read again from verse 8. Verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter's reminding us that there is an enemy as we live here as an exile. There is an enemy and his name is the devil. Uh, It's a word, a name which literally means enemy. So it's an appropriate kind of a name for him. And Peter says that this enemy, the devil, he's like a roaring lion and he's prowling around looking for someone to devour. Now that uh, kind of imagery there, that description of our enemy probably feels a little bit far off and a little bit foreign for us because we don't live in lion country, do we? Uh, Unless you come from a country where there are wild lions that you need to be conscious of and you need to adjust your behaviour accordingly, then you you don't actually kind of feel probably what you ought to feel when Peter's describing our enemy to us in this way. Because I mean, like for us, what is prowling around our neighbourhoods? What have we got to be scared of? Possums? You know, bush turkeys, not very threatening, is it? That's, that's our kind of frame of reference. We're kind of unfamiliar with this. So uh, allow me to kind of tw- ch- tweak the metaphor a little bit and perhaps put it in terms of a little bit more Australian. Uh, think of our enemy as a great white shark. Maybe that'll be more helpful for you. Swimming around, looking for someone to sink his teeth into. Maybe, maybe that imagery is one you're more familiar with. Maybe that imagery does something in your heart that it actually is designed to do, to, to evoke a kind of a fear, a kind of alertness. We probably all had that experience, right? When you, you're swimming out past the waves and the water's a little bit darker and deeper there and you feel some seaweed or something brush your leg and you think to yourself, right, well, I had a good innings, this is the end of my life, you know, the Lord's going to take me now, there's a shark down there and I hope it doesn't hurt. We probably know that kind of feeling, right? That's what Peter is going for here. He's saying, be aware, be alert, 
Be of sober mind. You do have an enemy, and he's a real person. He's not, he's not just some kind of malevolent force floating around. He's a real person, a fallen angel, Scripture seems to tell us. An angel that seems to have been booted out of heaven because of his pride, because of his refusal to humbly submit to God. That's our enemy, and he is working around the clock. He never knocks off, and his desire is to devour you, to destroy you to eradicate your faith. There is a real enemy and that is what he is up to. His desire more than anything else is that you and I would stop living for God, that we would stop honouring God, and that we would choose pride instead of humility and we would say, God, I'd rather not live my life for anybody other than myself, so see you later. He wants to get you focused on yourself to get you just obsessed with pursuing your own prideful, selfish ambition, your own comfort, your own security. And the way that the devil does that, the way that he is trying to devour you, primarily, I think, is through lying to you. That's his his main strategy. Jesus says that the devil is the father of lies and that when when he lies, he speaks his native language. And so I take it that the the kind of lies that the devil is going to be telling us are the kind of things that are the opposite to the promises of God in this chapter, right? The promises we've just looked at in verse 6. You remember that? Instead of humbling yourself before God, the devil wants you to be proud. He wants you to to be okay with being proud. Uh, So God says, humble yourself under my mighty hand. The devil wants you to think, when, particularly when you're going through some kind of hard life situation, humble myself under God's mighty hand. His hand doesn't seem very mighty at this point. It sure doesn't seem like it can help me. You know, God doesn't seem to be able to protect me from this thing that I'm going through. It doesn't seem like he, he wants to do anything about it. Perhaps God's not even in control. And if he is in control, what does that say about his goodness, that he would let me go through this? Maybe God doesn't even care for me. Those are the kind of lies that the enemy wants you to believe. He wants you to believe the opposite of that promise there, that wonderful promise that in due time, God will lift you up. He comes along and he whispers to you and he says, you know what, maybe God won't lift you up. Maybe that hope that you've been pinning your life on, that you've been pouring out your life for, maybe it's all for nothing, maybe it won't happen. Or maybe it's not worth it in the end. Maybe you'd be happier if you lived for yourself instead of living for God. He wants you to pursue pride and not humility, to live for your own glory now rather than for God's glory. That is what our enemy wants. It's a real danger. And so the question is, what do we, what do, we do about that? If that is a threat facing us that may potentially stop us from crossing that finish line, what do we do when we hear those messages coming at us? When we feel that that temptation from our our friends and our family and from the media and from our culture telling us to just give up on God, that maybe God is not really good, maybe God's not really in control, maybe that glory that's promised to you is not really worth it, maybe God should be doing more for you now, making you happier now. What do you do when you're tempted to kind of feel that way? The first thing you do is you notice it. You don't pretend that you're not feeling that temptation. You acknowledge it. And then you preach the gospel to yourself. That is the the remedy to Satan's lies. It is to return to the truth, to the truth of passages like 1 Peter 5. When you are feeling tempted to throw in the towel on God, 
come back to 1 Peter 5 and be reminded of the hope in these kind of passages and cling to it. Stand fast in the truth of God's grace, of who he is and what he has done for you and where he is leading all things. Stand firm in the truth that God is your chief shepherd. He sees you. He is looking after you right now. He knows what is best for you. He's the overseer of your soul. Remember that God has got you and that it's going to be okay. And understand that your inheritance really is being kept for you in heaven where it can never perish, spoil or fade. God can be trusted. So choose and keep choosing day by day by day to humbly submit to him. Humility is the key. Pride is the killer. So take off pride. Don't clothe yourself in pride. Clothe yourself in humility, anchored in your hope. And trust God. And verse 10, we'll finish on this. This is, this is what we believe. This is our hope. Verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. We are to trust that our God is a God of grace. He has been so gracious to us in the Lord Jesus. He has called us to his eternal glory. Remember that. Long for that. Have the right expectation that you will suffer in this life as an exile. You will suffer for a little while, but that's all it is. A little while in comparison to eternity. And trust that God will restore you. He will lift you up. There is glory awaiting us. God will make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Friends, that's our future. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we feel the, the temptation towards pride. We are tempted daily to live for ourselves and to exalt ourselves and pursue our own ambitions selfishly instead of your purposes, instead of humbling ourselves under your mighty hand and under the, the shepherds and overseers that you've given to us. But God, we see the foolishness of that and the short-sightedness of that tonight. So please would you establish us in the truth of our glorious inheritance that is absolutely worth it, absolutely secure. Establish us in the truth of your fatherly love for us, your care for us day by day, even when we don't seem to feel it or recognise it. Lord, help us to resist the lies of the enemy. Help us to humble ourselves daily before you because we want to reach the end of this race together. So please unite us in this humility, anchored in our hope, so that we would one day finish this race and meet you face to face and receive that commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.